Welcome back to the Expert R by Sandeep and Gitanjali Maini Foundation. In this session, we speak to Deepthi Sasidharan about the Konkan Coast and fashion history that connects. For those of you who are history buffs, you must know of her. If you don't already, then she's about to introduce herself in a bit. But what I must tell you here is that Deepthi's line of work is not just interesting, it's also something that foundations like ours hope a lot more people will consider or pursue as career options. History needs to be documented and preserved. And it's thanks to Deepthi that much of it is now being archived in India. Our last association with her was for a talk for Raja Ravi Varma Heritage Foundation. And this time, it's another interesting topic to explore on Expert R by Sandeep and Gitanjali Maini Foundation. So welcome, Deepthi. It's great to have you here. And I am so excited to hear about how you stumbled upon a subject like fashion history, knowing that you aren't a student of fashion. Thank you, Archana. Firstly, I'm delighted to podcast for the Experta by Sandeep and Gitanjali Many Foundation. And congratulations to the entire team on this much needed initiative. I was not a student of fashion, but I am a student of history. And historically, as you know, cloth has been such a symbol of identity. In Antebellum America, for example, um, you know, you have Negro cloth, plantation cloth, or simply slave cloth, which was a coarse, thick fabric used for clothing the slaves. So you see how cloth is tied in with the identity. In India, you have Mahatma Gandhi who was impacted by slavery and apartheid. And he goes on again to use this very symbol of emancipation, the humble homespun cloth into the khadi, which became then later an iconic representation of our Indian freedom struggle. So I really feel and in my line of work uh, where we work with historic collections in India that it is impossible to not work with textiles and costume when it is presented to the public as an exhibition or a book. And it's so important to tell the story behind it. And for me, fashion history really is nothing but that story. Hello, my name is Deepti Shashidharan and I work as a curator and an art historian. And as director at Eka Archiving, a large part of my work involves setting up museums. Three years ago, I began work with the late designer Wendell Rodericks on his passion project, Moda Goa Museum, looking at the sartorial history of his beloved home, Goa. This opportunity to look at a unique culture was welcome. And I would like to share this with you as we look back at the past 500 years, the connecting threads of fashion and textile history and how it binds the western coast of India, also known as the Konkan. The Konkan coast, geographically, stretches from the estuary of the Darwin River near the city of Daman, which is the Gulf of Cambay, to Karwar, south of Goa. And the Konkan also traces habitation back to the Acheulean period, which is more than a million years ago. And in more recently recorded history, settlements have waxed and waned over the years, starting from the Buddhist period and later the Hindu and the Muslim kingdoms. The people of this abundant land speak Konkani and use the Devanagari or other scripts to write it. And as I explained a little earlier, costume and cloth have always remained an expression of identity. Historically, fabric was expensive and at certain times in or periods in time, it was money essentially. And that's hard for us to think about today because in urban cities, at least, it's just available. However, textile historians around the world who research cloth will tell you 
that certain fabrics were associated with exclusivity. Until today, we associate, identify and affiliate a person or peoples by the clothes that they wear. Portuguese came to India by the sea and the military general Afonso de Albuquerque captured Goa from the Bijapur sultans and a new colony is established in 1510 CE. I don't think the conquerors even imagined the vast cultural changes they would introduce. The native traditional attire of the local Velep, Zalmi, Dhangar and Kunbi peoples at the time, for example, comfortable line cloth, a kashti, if you will, with a goat hair blanket for protection against the sun and the women in a knotted sari drape, suitable, of course, to the demands of the hot climate. The Portuguese fashion, on the other hand, that arrived was very typical Renaissance and in dark colors like blacks, reds and browns. You can see it in the contemporary portraiture that survives. Tight breeches with high shoes, layered clothing with puffed sleeves, and long coats, hats, and even a little later in the mid-17th century, the hats have square crowns and wide brims, button tunic jackets, lacy white cuffs, stiff collars, and gathered voluminous pants. In Goa, the new settlers encountered warm weather that made daily bathing necessary, and they began to wear fresh underclothes, something they weren't accustomed to in Europe. Think about it, clean underclothing was such a blessing. In fact, it also helped put many hygiene-related problems like body lice and other diseases and made it a thing of the past. But anyway, as the um, Catholic fervor increased, the Portuguese regime imposed the Inquisition in 1560. This was a formal order from the church, applicable to those who had presumably converted to Catholicism or Christianity but continued to practice Hinduism in secret. It was a terribly great churn as books and, and I quote, suspect material, unquote, in Konkani and Sanskrit and sometimes even Dutch were burnt or destroyed and a new empire tried to bring in a uniform civil code and religion. Those charged were either executed or incarcerated. The Inquisition also imposed many dress res restrictions in fact, one of the most notorious of these was the Zendi tax. Now, the word Zendi itself was a Portuguese corruption of the Konkani word Shendi, alluding to the small hair knot or tuft of hair typically worn by the Brahmins. The often oppressive Zendi tax was similar to the Jizya tax that the Hindus imposed on the Muslims, and it started in Goa and was eventually extended to all the Portuguese colonies and also subsequently covered Muslims. But the point I'm trying to make is that the tax itself was named on how a community of or persons actually wore their hair. It was imposed. Many converted to Christianity willingly. Cloth was actually one of the attractive offers to convert to the new religion, besides the jobs that were offered. And many did so and continued practicing their religion. So, in the late 16th century, Hindu men were fo forbidden from wearing dhotis and women from wearing cholis. Women had to cover their midriff, especially while attending church. And you couldn't enter Panjim, which was the capital city, without dressing up in European clothes. The Portuguese by this time are trying to understand the land they've conquered. They actually accept the Indian caste system and it got integrated into this newly introduced Catholic Christianity in Goa. The Brahmins are now called the Bamons, 
and they're new converts and trying very hard to fit in. Going to church on Sunday becomes a big thing. You see, it's also a way of communicating that you're now a Christian and dress was one of the most obvious ways of doing this. This disruption actually gave birth to many sartorial trends that are today considered Indian. The Portuguese introduced the skirt called the saia. And to this day, the petticoat skirt that we wear under the sari, essentially a slimmer cut, is called the saia. And the Portuguese calçaish or shorts is also pulled into the Konkani vernacular language. And since cloth is a primary identifier in human rites of passage, textiles become very uh, a very visual way to study outside influences. In Goan Catholic wedding co- customs today, we see echoes of earlier Hindu traditions. After a marriage is fixed, wedding bonds are read in the church on three consecutive Sundays before the wedding. And this is both an announcement of the wedding and if anyone objects to the wedding. Just after the first barn is read, the bride wears the chudo or bangle in her maternal uncle's house, who has the privilege of inviting her for this very important life milestone. The chudo ceremony takes place here where the bangle seller, he's called the kankonkar, and I really like that term because, you know, it comes from the bangles khan khan and so he becomes the khan konkar and he comes to the house and fits bangles on the bride's wrist and the to the accompaniment of the zoti which are special commemorative songs the bangles worn are green in color with yellow lines and it symbolizes the married life of the christian bride as the authoritarian portuguese uh, regime did not really um, allow brides to wear red the sado ceremony was born. The bride is gifted a red sari by her in-laws in her new home to wear. Uh, or the other ceremony called the roas, rose, uh, literally juice in Konkani. And then in Marathi, it becomes rasa and ras in Hindi. And it's very similar to the Hindu wedding ceremony of Haldi, where the bride and groom are anointed with turmeric. In this case, it becomes coconut milk and or coconut oil signifying the last of the bachelor days. And as the Inquisition became unbearable, many Goans migrated further south. So these rituals are also seen in the Manglo Catholic brides. But the blending is more fluid here of rituals that integrate the Hindu customs. And this really syncretic, um, multi-community, multi-religious, multi-ethnic culture grows along the coast. The Hindu brides, of course, wore green or orange and also the preferred purple saris. I also want to talk about the Goan story of the Pano Baju, which is amazing. Um, The costume is worn for a beloved Goan dance called the Mando. And the debate whether it's a traditional dance is a topic for another day. But it's a fine example of a dance that was introduced by the Portuguese for the elite. Today, the songs of the Mando comprise of love and tragedy, peppered with Portuguese words, but originally began with just the ghumat and the violin. When the ladies wanted to dance the Mando, they felt the need for a costume they could move freely in, in a simpler silhouette, and so the composite Pano Baju, or the Torho Paz, evolved. It was made of silk and velvet and was a very elaborate costume. It had four pieces, the sarong skirt with big bands of gold decoration, a long blouse worn inside, usually white and fringed with uh, delicate lace, a lovely embroidered dark velvet jacket, 
and a stole. The women would always carry the fan. And the etymology of the dress is a bit hazy, but pano in Portuguese means cloth. And baju may well be a reference to the sleeve that the blouse has, because the sort of cut garment actually comes into um, this part of the world around now. The pano baju silhouette is seen throughout the West Coast and further. In Kerala, it's called the mundaneriyada, the two pieces of linen cloth, but worn with a blouse. The Kerala Syrian Christian Chattamundu is also fairly conservative. It's fast disappearing. But again, the chatta, the tunic-like blouse, is worn with a four-meter-long mundu drape. Extra fabric is first pleated at the back of the body, and then a sarong-like drapes comes around the body for the pleats to tuck into, resulting in in an elegant pleated fan at the back. And it was just regarded as the Um, you know, the epitome of elegance um, amongst the church-going Christians. And sometimes the stole is also taken for formal occasions. Uh, Interestingly, in Malayalam, the word chatta is is kind of ubiquitous and it means really a blouse-like tunic. The cut and stitch costume, like I said, was not known on the West Coast. And for the women especially, this was an import from the West. Incidentally, chattakari or one who wears a chatta is also the term to refer to the Anglo-Indians or any community that wears a Western dress. Variations of the Go and Pano Baju also exist in the Northeast India and further to Burma where it's called the Longi, a stitched cylindrical sarong with a pleat and a blouse. It's a colonial introduction here too, this time by the British. Just like the Konkan coast, here too, men previously wore a voluminous tongshe paso, which is essentially a drape because it was unsewn and almost 10 yards long. So you see, a uniform, versatile and functional garment is beginning to appear all along the trade routes of, of the new colonial traders. In Malaysia, it's called the baju kurung. Baju still means jacket in Malay. And Singapore, it becomes the sarong kebaya where the kebaya blouse resembles the pano baju inside in the inside blouse, but it's fastened with ornamented pins and buttons, usually three in number. I also wanted to talk about the accessories. The pano baju is worn with uh, chinelos or shoes, usually low velvet shoes, and worn indoors. Sometimes these would be embroidered. The women's clothes shoe, therefore, makes its appearance with the coming of the Portuguese as the women wear it for dancing and going to church. The fan and the parasol are also common accessories. Hair combs that are fairly elaborate are worn in the hair, done up formally as a bun, sometimes in tortoise shell and other precious materials. The jewelry also undergoes a complete transformation. Fan-like hair combs become en tremblant. Uh, So flowers of gold or silver would sit on a spring and they would dance and catch the light when the women moved. Purses of velvet with ornate embroidery appear. Rosaries are owned by everyone according to status in gold, in coral and rock crystal, as well as cheaper materials. These are worn around the neck or wrist and one rare one also in the Moda Museum collection, even on a finger. Very wealthy women would wear a fator, essentially an ornament of green malachite stone with a coral on either side. Other jewelry that became unique to this region worked in marcasite and fine silver gold filigree, fashioned into brooches and crosses worn on the body. 
So in a little less as a century after their arrival in 1510, the whole sartorial aesthetic of a region changes. But by 1642, um, there is a memorandum that is submitted to King João IV of Portugal uh, by the Hindus in the Salset in Goa. It's one of the first areas where huge Brahmin conversions happen, complaining that the Brahmin Hindus who had not converted were getting better treatment than the now native Bamon Christians, especially in courts where the Hindu sits and the Christian stands. So again, you see how a slow reversal where native high caste Christians start reverting, um, start reverting and wearing tunics and head, perman, head turbans of the Hindus to reclaim respect. Um, as maritime trade increases, Parsis come to settle in Goa. And of course, there were already distinct settlements further north of Parsis in Gujarat, in cities like Navsari, Surat, Diu, and the most well-known uh, was Bombay, now Mumbai. The Parsis were settlers in India and trade, sea trade in particular, was a major occupation for them in the late 18th and 19th centuries. As a close-knit business community, there is an upsurge in their fortunes in this period due to the wealth generated in trade in opium. It was partly this wealth that helped build the modern city of Bombay. Another fascinating story. But by 1830s, as opium trade become, become, became contentious, um, the opium wars break out, the Parsi merchants move to the textile manufacturing business and make a successful transition into cloth trade. The Parsi women in India, and there were Parsi settlements in Goa as well, wear the sari. But since the earlier settlements are in Gujarat, they imbibe the local Gujarati way of draping the sari, of pulling it over their right shoulder from behind. They interact with the Portuguese. They wear longer blouses from the very beginning with the sari. And their saris, called the gara, use traditions from their native Iran, from Yazd, with newer materials like chamois silk embroidered in both in China and in India. Again, a very composite um, garment drawing influences from many countries, really. So in Goa today, you will still find women wearing dresses in everyday wear, as well as saris. The fisherwomen and field workers drape differently for work, but the blouse has crept in, like the rest of India. I've spoken about costume, but I wanted to add that Portuguese hegemony over the seas in the 16th century and powerful control over trade in India and China also meant that fabulous embroidered textiles were produced here and sent to Portugal too. For example, kolshush um, or quilted bread spreads were produced in Bengal and Goa. These were usually on Chinese silk and used fabulous Indian and Portuguese motifs, including densely embroidered flowers, figures, peacocks, animals, etc., and were keenly sought out, sought after items of luxury or diplomatic gifting in Europe. I hope this brief glimpse of what we wear helps to understand that the dresses we wear are our connecting threads to not just our family or community history, but our world at large. If you come to the museum when it opens next year, you can see some of these garments that gave birth to modern fashion and are really the result of man's search for glory, for adventure, wealth, and indeed the indomitable human spirit. Thank you. 